Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, March 12th, 2021. I am John Budhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Uh, We are closing our April issue today, uh, and uh, its contents will be up presently on our website before it uh, is in the mail, uh, in the mailboxes of our uh, wonderful print subscribers. Uh, our, our, our lead story is called The Good News They Won't Tell You About Race in America by Wilfred Riley. We have a really great piece by our own Christine Rosen about Taylor Lawrence, the, uh, the New York Times social media uh, columnist, uh, whom you've heard us um, rag on a bit here. And there we have uh, wonderful pieces about the history of ex-presidents and their political futures by Michael Medved and uh, a piece on the phenomenon of the polymath by Joseph Epstein and just so much else. It's a very rich treasure trove issue and you will enjoy it at commentarymagazine.com where we give you a few free reads and ask you to subscribe and you know that you should be subscribing. If you've been listening, you've been getting this free content for many, many, many months, it is time for you to pony up so that we can bring you what we bring you and do what we do and like be a be a be a sport, be a mensch, be a good citizen, and subscribe. So last night Joe Biden gave his first nationally televised address from the White House in primetime commemorating the year of Corona, uh, memorializing the year of Corona. Um, and, uh, Abe and Christine, you were both troubled by Biden's mien and demeanor, I would say, right? So Abe, uh, what, what struck you? I mean, unfortunately I, I found that I was really distracted from the bat, from the word go by the sense of, um, decline. I, I don't, I I mean, personal decline in Biden. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. I don't know. I'm not diagnosing him or anything, but but he he seemed frail and weak and, and um, was um, very unsure of his words, um, and it was depressing and and distracting. Um, okay, I'm going to play yeah. the first moment. I, I mean, this is on my iPhone. I'm playing it into the – Noah's very skeptical, thinks this is going to sound bad. It's six seconds from the very beginning – of the speech, and it would give you some reason to understand why Abe began, found himself unnerved throughout and anxious, and we can talk about that. Hold on. Just listen to this for a second. Oh, wait a minute. This is so technologically complicated as I play my iPhone into my microphone. Hold on. Tonight, I'd like to talk to you about... Tonight. So the, the first word he speaks after good evening, my fellow Americans, is the word tonight, and he mispronounces the word tonight. Now, I don't want to like harp on it, but, you know, 78 years old, this was the main issue, uh, dog, you know, the, the, the main question mark about him throughout 2019, 2020. We watched those debates, everybody with their heart in their throat, even if you didn't want him, you wanted him, whatever, just to, because you were so nervous that he was going to go up and like seem like a, like a, uh, you know, a, a diminished old man. Um, and so, Abe, that's, uh, yeah, that's right. No, so you so found that throughout the, it was a twenty-six minute speech. So yeah, and you know, I say it, it it's only it's agonizing um, to, to to watch that. And he, 
uh, you could kind of see it in his eyes too. I think you know uh, he just was he wasn't um, he just wasn't um, a forceful presence uh, to, to put it mildly. Yeah. Yeah, and this is, I mean, the frail, speaking of his frailty is not, I, I want to make sure we distinguish between that and the kind of conspiracy theorizing about his cognitive faculties that went on certainly during the election and that some, you know, crazy people are continuing to do. It is more, I think, at this time of crisis, which is what we're constantly being reminded by his administration that we are in and the need for all the, all the stuff that we're doing to respond to that crisis to have the leader not be steadying, but frail. And the frailty, I think, and the inconsistency of performance. So yes, I think during some of those debates and during the campaign, he did seem more vigorous, but there's a real inconsistency in his public presentation. And you combine that with the fact that he's so heavily controlled by his people and not actually, he's rarely released into the wild for the public or even the press to question him. He still hasn't held a press conference, although he's now claiming he will. So I think it's a number of those factors that just it's it's unnerving and sad is how I would describe my feeling watching him give that speech, you know, regardless of its content. Yeah, I did not. Uh, I, I saw those same verbal tics and, you know, the sort of getting caught up in your own mouth. And that happens to all of us, um, particularly when you're in front of a camera, you can be kind of nervous. I was much more forgiving of that than I thought um, maybe probably other people were. Maybe Abe was um, <clears throat> what I found a little lackluster in this speech. You know, the, the morning after reaction is Joe Biden projects hope. He gives you hope. Um, this was half a dozen papers that this was a lot of hope. Um, you know, it was kind of buried under what was otherwise two thirds of this speech dedicated to mournful expressions of sorrow over that which we have lost and the dead who, uh, who are just, we didn't get to say goodbye to them and the bodies are still mounting. And also things are pretty bad and they could get worse again. And you got to remember that if they get worse again, we're going to have to go right back to the same place. I mean, if there was hope in there, you had to sift through with all this, you know, sort of empathetic detritus to try to get to it. Um, nevertheless, you know, he did the sort of thing that the Biden administration does, which is, uh, insofar as there's optimism, it's only because they abandoned their own overly cautious objectives. So it used to be that we might go back to approaching a degree of getting within the, the astronomical orbit of normal at the end of next Christmas or this coming Christmas. Now it's July 4th, which is great, but you can only do small groups. And if you do small groups, they got to be outdoors and only with people like you know, who are the same family group, what have you. Guarantee you that by the summer, it's going to be big groups. Yeah, that was. But guess what? All the data and all the evidence suggests that we'll be in a place where that'll be safe again. Um, so you can kind of set your watch by the ways in which this administration undersells its own objectives and then which flies in the face of common sense and then sort of catches up with common sense once common sense has already eclipsed that common sense. So everybody will be, yesterday, I'm sorry, I'm just mm-hmm. filibustering here, but yesterday the TSA screened more passengers than at any point since the pandemic began. The public is already well ahead of the prevailing consensus that dominates cable news, that is uh, predominant in the, in the West Wing, um, and the White House is playing catch up. And eventually that's going to come back to bite the political class. So uh, Biden last night had the nerve to say, when I came to office, I said that there would be a hundred, uh, 100 million shots in the first 100 days. And people thought that was too ambitious. and Way over the top. Over they the thought t- it was way over, yeah, the, way top. over the top. Not everybody. <laughs> yeah. 
And now, now we're yeah, on because court, when he, when he came, cleared, yeah. you know. Can I just say uh, to, to Noah's point, I, I think there's also something else going on besides the kind of trying to be the empathizer in chief, which was kind of what he ran on as a candidate as well. The expressions of hope were not, I also thought that was very bizarre that that's how it's being pitched by the media this morning, because it was so instrumental. It's like, I'll give you this gram of hope if you agree to all of these things that the federal government will tell you you have to do in order to even have the hope, and then maybe to like have a 4th of July barbecue with your relatives, but you have to agree to our terms. I mean, I actually felt that that messaging was really off. I didn't like the way that that was presented. I, I hate, I'm sorry, just one last thing about this point. I, I hated the, the 4th of July point because I I was thinking, if you're telling me that we're spending a second 4th of July with some sort of restrictions, like that this is your idea of hope, that is the most depressing thing I could even think of. Okay, so there are two possibilities. Let, 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 me, let me throw out that there are two possibilities here. One of which is that the uh, how we're going to be how life is going to be like going forward is exactly analogous and consciously and cynically analogous to the some people said my goal of a of hundred million shots in a hundred days was way over the top when in fact we were at a million shots a day before he became president therefore we were at a hundred million shots a day before he became president had literally nothing to do with him all had to do with the distribution and the creation of the system and 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 all of that and the you know distribution of the uh, uh places and putting all that stuff together and a lot of this has only been hampered not by vaccine supply but by these ludicrous rules that are being promulgated by states and localities to try to control who gets it and who doesn't get it as opposed to simply creating an orderly system by age or something like that, which is then deemed, uh, you know, uh, uh, racially biased or something like that. Okay. So uh, we're going to be able to gather in small groups outside only with friends, uh, you know, only with family members, like six people, you know, you know, in a bunker on July 4th, (laughs) because they know it's going to be better than that. And what they want to do is have Biden come out every three weeks and say, Things are going so great, better than we ever thought they would, that we're doing, we're opening this. And then three weeks later, he'll do it again. And then it'll be like he'll keep getting credit for things that are the natural consequences of the system that was put into place during the Trump administration to create the vaccines, to buy the vaccines, to create a distribution system for the vaccines that he is piggybacking on and arguably running perfectly fine. But politically, this is if I'm right about this, then everything we heard is disingenuous. They know perfectly well that actually people will be able to have orgies in June (laughs) if, in fact, we are in a position where there is more virus, there is more vaccine than there are people who want shots by June 1st. But of course it's disingenuous, right? Okay. Yeah, of course it's disingenuous and it's predicated on the assumption that you're an idiot. That you were no, too but, stupid no, to know it. But and the press is disingenuous. No, it is. It is, and I'm going to make this point. Let me point do point because... two. Let me do point two, and then you... And Okay, point two is, it's not disingenuous. And what is going on here is a combination of Biden, as, as early administrations always do, relying on the exact strategy that got him to the White House. He had a great political success. He won the presidency. He did things in a certain way and handled things in a certain way. And they're like, don't mess with success. Keep going the way you're going. Be the mortar in chief. You know, be quiet. Be understated. Be thoughtful. 
be sad, all of this, and don't change the way you're going because it's gone so well. And often there these campaigns have to transition into governing mode and like actually be leaders of the con instead of uh, presenting their personalities to the public in hopes that they'll win an election. That's that's one thing. The other thing is that um, that this genuinely is what they think is we're so terrified that there's going to be another outbreak or this or that or people aren't going to wear masks enough and blah, 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 that um, that they're they're panicked and they want to say this is what's going to happen by July 4th because they want people to remain depressed and worried and thinking, A, that they have to get the vaccine. The whole point here is we think you got to say how great it is to get the vaccine because your life is going to go back to normal. But what if you're a public health official and what you want to people to think is everything is terrible. You better get the vaccine uh, because if you don't get the vaccine, nothing will ever go back to normal. Not once you get it, it's party time. Well, but that's right. But I don't see any distinction between that and thinking you're a boob who needs to have your hand held to navigate life. This it is like, and very similar to, in fact, if we had elected Anthony Fauci president, because he is apparently dictating very much of this policy. As we all know, and I will reiterate, Anthony Fauci went out in front of everybody and said, no, don't wear masks. Not because they weren't effective. They didn't have it. They, they weren't shocked by the fact that they were effective. What they needed was to like, keep the supply in check. So for hospitals, right? For the greater good. Anthony Fauci lied, said he lied about seroprevalence and the notion that a certain amount of prevalence of antibodies in the, in, the, in the general population would lead to herd immunity. He said he bumped it up just to keep people quiet, just to keep them What you them mean is he said it would be Finally. 70% of herd immunity and, and then he, that, said, then oh, he started saying it. 80 or 90, right? And he said, why? He said, because that would induce more compliance in the general public. Finally, you have this piece in Politico today, which shows that uh, Anthony Patrick is generally in the White House all the time, dictating policy terms to the president of the United States. One of his policy terms was that he had been central to rejecting the evidence, increasing evidence, and, and advocated by people like uh, uh, Rahm Emanuel's brother, um, whose name I forget, Zeke Emanuel. Like the public health democratic uh, you know, establishment has all been saying that the evidence suggests that you should push off that second dose of the Pfizer-Moderna vaccine because you're, you're, the, the antibodies are very prevalent after four weeks of your first dose. And we can get more shots into more arms that way. Anthony Fauci rejected it. Why? Not because the data wasn't compelling, although he did say that, but because it reinforces worries more widely within the administration that changing these recommendations now would be a logistical and messaging nightmare. Messaging nightmare. PR. It's public relations. It is not about health policy. It is about maintaining consistency across this messaging to keep you in line. But that, not being doesn't, make it, that doesn't make it disingenuous. Because if you believe you're no, let me put it this way: if you believe you're doing it for the greater good, then it has a certain moral frame to it. It is the platonic ideal of the noble lie, but the noble lie is still a lie. Okay, so can I just jump in to say part of what disturbs me about even the way we're talking about this conversation, but decidedly the way it was framed by Obama and has been by the by uh, congressional Democrats. The idea, what I didn't see is any shout out to like the people who actually developed the vaccine, which wasn't the government. It was big pharma. <laughs> Sorry, like that. Those words didn't come out of his mouth. I mean, I heard a lot of praise for frontline workers. Well deserved. But there was so much. The emphasis is just top down, top down, top down from the messaging, which I, I, I agree with Noah about the public health messaging here. 
but that the government is your savior. The government is here to rescue you. And that message, both with the COVID relief bill, which is very little relief and more like, you know, democratic payouts, at least this version of the bill. Um, and, and even the messaging last night, it's like, it literally was, I'm from the federal government. I'm here to help, but not help rescue. Like you need me to rescue you. And this, the, what it kept bothering, what kept bothering me about it. And later I realized what it was is that there, for all of the idea of hope, there wasn't a lot of hope placed on individual people to do the right thing. One. And secondly, to recover from this and show resilience and thrive again. I didn't hear that message. Yeah. I have to add also to this, to this point. Um, when he spoke about one of the things he's planning, the administration is planning to do going forward is to update guidelines, CDC guidelines. He said, so, and we will tell you what you can do and what you cannot do. He didn't say, you know, we, yes, that was the one. Oof. We're going to make suggestions, you know, we're going to advise, we're going to, we will tell you what you can and cannot do. They think that this is the right, me- they think this is the message. Mm-hmm that the American people want to hear. And I, I think that there's reason both in policy terms and emotional terms and, and, and messaging terms and all of that, that we are, we, we are engaged now in this administration in a great experiment about the nature of paternalistic central government that we haven't really faced. I mean, people fit, thought this a little bit Me the after 9-11. <laughs> But I mean, after 9-11, like there was this, you know, there was a kind of top-down American leadership that involved changing all kinds of policies to allow the intelligence agencies, domestic and and foreign, to communicate with each other, new kinds of rules, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, a lot of top-down stuff that had a slightly paternalistic feeling to it. But if you combine the way Biden talked and the nature of the coronavirus, the two, two, almost $2 trillion bill that he talked about at the end of the, of the speech and all of that. Uh, this is frankly, this is frankly, uh, without much uh, leavening, um, the, uh, this is paternalistic government in, in its purest form. And they are, they are not making any bones about it. We're here to keep you safe. We're here to save your business and to give you money so that you can recover. We're going to tell you what you can and cannot do in order to uh, get through this pandemic. We are there for you. We're the government and we're here to help. And one of the ways that we're going to help you is coddle you, nestle you, nestle you in a, in a, in a, in a sort of a, you know, uh, swaddle you in comfort, uh, money comfort and and psychic comfort where you can turn over your self-governance to us. Now, we hear that and we feel like, oh, my God, like we've spent 50 years desperately trying to move away from this kind of great society attitude that has had such terrible consequences. And here we are back into it. But I just don't know whether the, you know, the the vast majority of people who voted for Biden feel the way that we do. Well, I don't think they do, but we're talking past each other to a certain extent. I'm not arguing that this isn't what the public wants. I mean, you even have conservatives now putting their fingers up in the wind and saying, okay, well, big government is okay as long as it punishes the people I don't like. I mean, that is the sentiment that is abroad. The problem isn't whether it's effective. The problem is whether it's noble. Oh, I agree. I know, I'm, not, I'm not arguing. In this case, I'm not arguing with you. I just think that there is something very interesting going on here, which is that usually uh, you couch, uh, you know, Obama in, in, in 2010 and in his State of the Union addresses and all this 
couches the you know paternalistic top-down neo-socialist government stuff that he wants to do in the language of American individualism. I mean, you sort of put in government is just the name of the things that we do together, but together that's communitarian, right? That sounds voluntary the way it's like, you know, we're all raising a barn for Farmer Jones down the road, or we're all going to get together to do a food drive at the church. Like that's everything that, you know, conservatives look at and bless as the, you know, heartbeat of America, the little platoons that Tocqueville talked about and all of this. And then you take that language and you kind of subvert it and distort it to to give it collectivist, you know, to use it to be, to cover for collectivism. What happens when you don't cover for the collectivism anymore? I mean, they're not covering for the collectivism. They are not making that bow to sort of American tradition, American individualism, American self-governance, they're just going head on at, we're here to take care of you. Well, and not just the individual. They're embracing bailing out democratically run cities that have buried themselves in debt and mismanagement for decades, they're getting big checks. Like, you know, we talked about San Francisco, but all of these, you know, blue cities and blue states are going to get huge injections of cash, which will paper over literally with our taxpayer money and dollars will paper over this mismanagement and, and the bad way in which they have been wasting, uh, you know, public funds for years so that they, I, I agree, they're not even trying to cover for it. In fact, they're saying this is the role of the government is this kind of bailouts. And these are the same people who didn't like big banks being bailed out, as I recall correctly. So, so, but it's okay to bail out, you know, uh, dysfunctional cities. It's bizarre, but they're emboldened right now. And you said what, what happens when they stop covering for themselves? Well, sometimes they overreach and the voters punish them. So that's actually something that we should. Well, that's why, that's why I said it was a great experiment. I mean, uh, the, the, there is good reason to believe that this will be a failure. And over the course of its failure, it will have all kinds of terrible unintended consequences in terms of, uh, you know, uh, family crises, employment crises, inflation, however you want to slice it over time, uh, that will, that will be very telling, uh, and we'll see how the public responds to it. I think it's an interesting bid is what I'm saying. You know, where you could, you could kind of be a little less, you could be a little more cautious and pretend that it's much more, it's not a break with the past, but they don't want to pretend it's a break from the past. They like that David Brooks is calling Biden a transformational president and not, you know, our healer in chief or, you know, the person who's, you know, like Gerald Ford, like what did he promise? It's a return to normalcy. He's not the normalcy president. He's a transformational president now. Well, that's very flattering. That's very ego boosting both to him and the people who work for him. Um, as we are talking about how we're going to get out of Corona, what life is going to be like after Corona, uh, what the transition is going to be like in all kinds of industries, in all kinds of uh, walks of American life. I've been telling you, you got to go download and listen to Dan Senor's podcast post-Corona, which you can get everywhere you get your fine podcasts. Uh, Dan has interviewed Neil Ferguson. He's interviewed Billy Bean. He's in, he's done a lot on Israel as the vaccination nation. We've talked, he talked about uh, New York after the virus and sports after the virus and uh, uh, healthcare after the virus. And uh, on his latest episode, he interviews Maggie Haberman, the superstar reporter of the New York Times and a very old friend of mine dating back to the time when I was a TV critic at the New York Post and she was a copy kid. Um, 
uh, and it, she is one of the uh, most amusing and uh, deadpan and um, uh, sort of uh, fun understated people uh, that I know. Um, and Dan, on this uh, podcast, they talk about what the impact of Corona has been on the world of political reporting, a world in which, you know, when you're you no longer can like see people in person and have this kind of, uh, well, you know, how, how is this going to affect things when it's all over? Uh, are, are people going to go back to sort of face-to-face reporting? Is there going to be Zoom reporting? Is there going to be, you know, uh, a lot of that stuff? Uh, she talks about, uh, they talk about the, uh, the political lives uh, affected by the virus then and now from, you know, over the course of the past year, Cuomo, Biden, DeSantis, Trump, um, you know, the, these, these arcs uh, and journeys that, that these careers are taking that are not following the pattern that people would have thought that they might, might follow. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of her own, her own interesting life history and, uh, and what it's like to cover politics in this, you know, deranged era. So that's, Maggie Haberman on Dan Senor's post-corona podcast. Download it uh, from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you can get your podcasts. Um, so uh, well, let's talk about tone. So, uh, you know, it, uh, Noah said there wasn't enough hope. You know, it's like this was hope. Like it wasn't hope. And it really wasn't hope. Like it's a, it was a very depressing speech. Um, and you know, it's funny because eulogies, uh, of which this is a form, eulogies are not great. Eulogies are not depressing. They are, they are partially, they're sad. They're, um, you know, they, they, they evoke the sadness of the experiences that people have gone through and they have a kind of, uh, ruminative, positive, you know, uh, the me- the memory of those who have gone before, what they did, how were the wonderful ways in which they affected the lives of others, the kinds of things that no one will ever forget about them and all of that. Um, and this was simply a litany of uh, death, sorrow, separation, division, remorse, and, you know, and I, I don't know, like... Uh, aside from the fact that I just don't think that's a good attitude for a leader to take, particularly when he's talking about something that we are, we have all been living through. And we don't really need to be reminded that a lot of people have died. There's a story today that says that the death, the number of deaths in the United States rose 15% over the, in 2020, over the number of deaths in 2019. That's a staggering fact. And I, Everybody knows, I think everybody that I know knows somebody who has been horribly and profoundly affected by this. Do we need to be reminded a year later of all that we've lost? I mean, it's okay to remind you of all you've lost, but not only all you've lost. I mean, you know, it's like, it's like, do you, do you talk to somebody who is trying to emerge from a state of depression and say, my God, I understand why you're so depressed. Everything is terrible. What a horrible experience. Your grief is totally understandable. Let's all let's all take a moment to 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 join you in your grief, or to sort of wallow in your grief. And I, um, I I thought I thought that was um, for about five minutes it was okay, and then there was nothing 
You miss the admonitions, the admonitions about your terrible behavior and how awful you are and how this is all going to go back to the way it was in the darkest of dark days. If you don't shape up. Oh yeah. I, Oh, there was the, um, yeah, that's always, that's always a big uh, part of the eulogy. (laughs) You're going to follow, (laughs) you're following the person who is in the coffin right now, (laughs) unless you do X, Y, and Z. Well, and he'd already, they, we've already had, we've already seen that Joe Biden, right? They did the big, they did the commemoration and the whole public display of grief, you know, when, when the numbers hit half a million, I thought that was appropriate. I mean, at the time I actually thought, you know, he, he was early on in the administration. It was an acknowledgement. It was a kind of public grieving role that Trump had never embraced or done uh, and it was needed. But I was shocked to see it happen again tonight when I agree, John, that he should be, we should be looking forward. Um, but I think Noah's right. And, and as cynical as it sounds, it's probably the explanation. He's got to keep expectations low and the control, we're still in control uh, message going because otherwise, how do you scare people straight? I just wonder how much this really does reflect the public mood. It does in polls, but there's sort of this Japanese concept of the public face that we have adopted in this country that we never used to have. And we now have where you just have to put on this mournful expression to, to comport with the perceived uh, social um, ideals that people want to project. And I just wonder because those TSA numbers make me wonder Walking into that mass vaccination place where it's practically a party atmosphere and every, the, the levity it permeates the air. I just wonder how much the public is really in that mood versus how much they think they're supposed to be when they talk to pollsters, when they go into the White House, when they get in front of a camera. I mean, there's a public face here. But I've experienced the private face, and it's a lot more jovial than the one they want to let on. I, I, I think... I have to say that all of us on the podcast have um, continuously underestimated the degree to which um, there are many people out there who are, it's the fearfulness and, and the, the, the people who continue to be absolutely paralyzed with fear over this thing. And there are a lot of them. They respond to that part of the Biden speech to the, to the don't, I need you to 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 behave. I, I mean, when he gets he leans in and does the intimate whisper about how he needs us, I find that uh, almost sickening. Um, but that was his sort of uh, pitch to to you know get us to comport with these things. But um, I think that that is um, all. Of this is aimed at that part of the of the of the population, which is which is big. Which is I think we we don't realize how big it is. There are many people out there who are absolutely they continue to be absolutely terrified. Well, and it's, well, so this is actually, that's an interesting point because what it suggests is that we're, we're coming up to this moment in time where that view uh, has been allowed to, you know, uh, prevail at the beginning, which was sensible. There's so much we didn't know, but it has been questioned for a while now, right? Like particularly with regard to schools and the opening of restaurants and other activities like it. Now the question is, can that view hold everyone else hostage? Because it's difficult to put a number on it. But I think you're right, Abe, it's a significant number. But if the Biden administration is siding with that number, then they are agreeing to hold hostage the rest of the country, at least in the way that they message the pandemic. Ron Klain just shot out a New York Times headline saying, what we are working towards. That's White House Chief of Staff. White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain. Push, New York Times headline. President's goal, July 4th gathering with close family. That is what we are working towards. Break out the sparklers. This is our ambitious objective. (laughs) 
guess what? Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, <laughs> I love to see that last summer. I'm just I'd saying. Love to see a survey <laughs> of people shot full of sodium pentothal telling us exactly how many times they've gathered with close family over the last year. Because you well, won't get an honest answer. Because you're not I supposed mean, to say the honest answer. Yeah, but but I mean, I think Abe's right. Like you, you, you have two kinds of people in the United States. You have people who are doing whatever it is that they can do, even if they're being very prudent. You know, they're, and then you have people who are following these rules, like you know, like neurotic straight A students who who you know who want an apple from the teacher, and um, and, and uh, they're all they're both in very large numbers, and um. The interesting thing is that the balance of virtue over the course of 2020 was with the the cautious, prudent people, right? I mean, you could say, look, I can't live like this. I can't. It's too much. I don't like wearing the mask. I don't like this. I want to see my parents. I want to go out. I want to do whatever I want to do. But there was always a tinge of like, you're not strong enough. You're not strong enough to take it. You're not morally, you're not, you know, and you're not thinking about everybody else and you're being selfish. Come now, it's March, right? And uh, 20% of people, uh, you know, are are vaccinated and that will be up to 50% probably by the end of April. And I don't know where the virtue goes. Suddenly it's like, the virtue is I'm seeing my parents. How dare you? Like my parents need me and my kids need my parents, and go screw yourself because I don't care. You know, if you're sitting in your house cowering in terror, then you go wait at line at three in the morning to get the last dose of the day. If you're not, you know, if you're not part of, uh, you know, group one, a or one B because that's it. You are now, you are now harming my kids who are having psychological problems and can't get back to school and all of that. The worm may turn and the moral sanction and suasion thing may change, but it had it really didn't. I mean, I think that was the experience in 2020 that we we didn't quite uh, predict when when it was like May and June. We said, well, it's not going to go on like this because people can't bear it. It was more like, well, you know, there. what choice do we have except to try to mitigate this because otherwise we're going to be in it forever. We didn't know that vaccines were coming. We didn't know they would be here by the end of the year, all of that. We were flying blind and the people who couldn't contain themselves looked selfish. My my thing is, is that what's ironic about this is that the people who are hunkered down and are most responding to this are the most visible the, the people who are not responding to this are, by definition, invisible. They're gathering like Václav Havel in the Magic Lantern, having their, having their uh, you know, g- gatherings sight unseen because it is socially unacceptable. And to what extent, when that breaks out, when that becomes public, we'll know the answer to it. But we know it's been going on because there have been breaking up speakeasies and, uh, you know, un- unsanctioned parties in major cities across this country, where where is it happening outside the the um, view of the of the press, which is mostly centered in major urban urban centers? I don't know, but I'd be shocked to see if this was the prevailing view across the country. I know we've been overestimating the extent to which that has been a prominent feature of our uh, our public discourse, but I just I just don't know. I really I really find it hard to imagine that this tone is what people want to hear in the summer of 2021, 
when you have a vaccine prevalence of 40% across the country. It's, really? It's, it's, I don't know. See, I think that there's a real, uh, it's, it's, it is a strange moment. And I do think the midterms will solve a lot of this just simply by how things shake out politically. But you could, you could take that image of, uh, you know, someone finally getting to hug their grandma, which, and the, the Democrats will say, look, we've, we've done this. We've allowed you to hug your grandma. A Republican could take that same exact image and make a commercial that says, they're telling you when you can hug your grandma. And that would appeal. Then you can see the appeal on both sides. And that that's is a very, <laughs> yeah, that is a perfect example of what the largest possible culture issue will be in 2022 is they have they have taken on the pandemic to create a more paternalistic society they have used it cynically to advance matters and ideas and causes that have absolutely nothing to do with getting america back on its feet but more to expand their own authority their own power and the way that government uh, controls our lives and It'll be an interesting debate, is what I'm saying. I mean, I guess it'll fall the way these things always fall, which is uh, uh, in the in a time of uh, of hyperpolarization, which is that uh, there will be people who will be slavishly listening to this message, and there will be people who have absolutely no interest in it whatsoever, and then you'll have people on the right who will say they're they've done this deliberately. You know, they're there's they've been meeting in a cabal. To, to, because they want you not to love your grandma because they want you to, you know, worship Biden or something like that. And then we'll get some QAnon version of this essentially self-governance libertarian message. And then we'll all be off to the races. Uh, with the with the signing of the bill yesterday and the event, I guess, later today where there will be actual some kind of positive celebration of the fact that the federal government is... Um, you know, basically uh, created a rain machine and is going to shower $2 trillion on people in four and a half seconds. Biden bucks is trending on social media right now. I just want to point that out. Biden, Biden bucks? bucks. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so uh, how are, how, what effect are Biden bucks going to have on America and on our society and on markets? That's why you got to look to the Bonson Group that bi-coastal management firm, $2.5 billion under management, uh, led by David Bonson. Uh, if you want to know what is going to go on in the intersection of politics, policy, and the markets, you can look to their internet products, the dividend, uh, the dctoday.com, which is a daily newsletter, and uh, dividendcafe.com, which is a weekly newsletter, uh, to try to answer the question, what are the moves that are being made by Janet Yellen at Treasury, by uh, by Jay Powell at uh, at at the Fed, and by the uh, by the Keynesian lunatics at the White House and on Capitol Hill to um, uh, to to have a genuine impact on 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 the future and how you should think about using your money uh, and your investments to protect yourself, hedge against the kinds of bad things that may come down the pike and take advantage of the good things that are come going to come down the pike. So that's the Bonson Group, the dctoday.com, dividendcafe.com, that antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. And we thank the Bonson Group for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Uh, so what, what do we 
how how do we see the coverage and rollout of Biden bucks? Um, how are we going to actually get a real beat on how this money is being deployed and spent and, and all of that? Because we are, there's a kind of shocked tone to the coverage, a kind of shocked, delighted as though it's, you know, it's a, uh, you know, it's uh, Christmas every day uh, to the, oh my God, there's $200 billion for childcare. There's, uh, you know, I didn't realize that there was 800 bazillion dollars for, you know, subways. Uh, there's the, you know, and you know what? Not only is there a bailout of San Francisco, but, you know, there's, and you know, we're going to find out there's 10 other things in the bill we didn't really know were there. Um, stuff might have been stuck. Well, the New York City MTA stopped their pay for, pay wage freezes. Everybody uh-huh. gets a raise now. Right, right. Which isn't and, to say and, they didn't deserve it. But the reason why you didn't get a pay wage, uh, a wage raise is because the city is terribly mismanaged. Well, I mean, uh, so uh, the, it's a it's a complicated... Anyway, I it's... Right, so there's going to be all this stuff, and uh, the coverage is going to be overwhelmingly positive. Yep, it's going to be, it's gonna be right? another... All the, all the problems, that, and you've just begun to, to, to cite, you know, only a few, will be framed as, oh, that's the stuff that they're saying in, in crazy uh, right-wing media. Um, just just as it was with Andrew Cuomo and the nursing homes, um, uh, you know, longstanding things that 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 were there for people to see, um, that that were only sort of uh, discussed, criticized in our precinct. Um, and well, and unless, this, unless something breaks it out as as it did with Cuomo into the larger into the larger media. Well, and this, I think, I can't remember if it, who said this the other day on the podcast. It was, we kind of breezed past this point, but I think we'll also be seeing more of this, Abe, as you describe in terms of how it's framed. And that's this, we can't go back to normal because normal was awful pre-pandemic, right? Normal was, had inequities. Normal was racist. Normal was, you know, economically disadvantaging the wrong, you know, the too many people, like all of the, I, this idea of there is not even a new normal. It's, it's, an, it's a revolutionary kind of way of reimagining society. That was all we always worried about that because we're conservatives, but they are now, as you said earlier, John, they're saying that out loud. And this idea of what their new normal, what the, what normal should look like versus how the average person who just wants to get through this and get on with their lives, who might not even mind all the money that's being spent by the government being told that everything about what life was like before was terrible. I'm not sure that's a great message either, but that is what what I've seen, particularly with regard to, you know, why teachers unions refuse to let teachers back in the classroom, but you see it as well with how this money is going to get spent and how they talk about how it's going to get spent. It's just interesting dealing with all these issues in this time of extraordinary polarization, because when opinions were much more, uh, fluid in a, in a partisan sense. And you could get people who said that they liked X, Y, and Z about their party, but didn't like A, B, and C about their party. But on balance, they were more with X, Y, and Z than ABC. Uh, and therefore parties had to tread lightly on their, you know, on their most extreme agendas because um, it wasn't necessarily the case that the people in their own coalitions were all that committed to what they wanted. And that, a lot of that seems to have fallen by the wayside. So, Christine, you're saying, look, ordinary people don't want to hear this. But it's sort of like you can presume if you're Biden that whoever is called a Democrat, 
you can say anything the way Trump could say or do anything. Biden's got 96% support or something among Democrats, like Trump had early, low 90s support among Republicans. So who is it? What is the purpose? Is there any suasion? Is there any, like, you know, use of the bully pulpit to change people's minds? Or are you just intensifying your own support? And since there seem to be more Democrats than Republicans right now, that's a, you know, that's a good default plan for Biden. Or so much of persuade, so much of being a president is about persuasion and changing the balance on the margins of certain types of issues, so that you pull people along to follow you, you know, and to and to and to and to join up with you. You know, that's that's George W. Bush getting twenty percent more of the vote in two thousand and four than he got in two thousand, or Bill Clinton getting. You know, I can't remember how much, like like 30% more of the vote in 1996 than in 1992. I mean, that's what happens when politicians make some kind of a connection or are able to make an argument that pulls people along behind them who were against them in the first place. But that's assuming Biden's going to run for re-election, right? I mean, you're, all of those examples were presidents who were already planning out their strategy to get more votes the next time they ran. Maybe he's not going to run. I'm not saying right. he, they've already made a decision, right. but and he's very publicly stated he's planning to run, but he's going to be really old. <laughs> well, I and, mean, I meant that just, I meant that yeah. in a more general sense yeah. about what yeah. the purposes of political leadership and what is it, I, you know, I, I, I wrote a- but He a, did a, that tonally, a, sorry. He did that tonally yeah. in the speech. That's the idea. Like tonally, yeah. he's playing that game, but policy-wise, they're not doing that. Right. Right. Well, you know, I wrote a I wrote a piece I think eleven years ago for commentary called "The Purposes of Political Combat," and um, it was about how uh, Barack Obama seemed annoyed that uh, you know he couldn't just get everything through like easily. Though compared to what things were like now, you know, he got things through incredibly easily. But you know, this whole idea that he would say, "Look, I won," so basically everybody should bend you know, their arc, the the arc of history toward me. And that my point there in the piece was that politics begins when elections end, that elections are about getting elected. And politics is about what elected politicians do to advance their interest or retard somebody else's interest. And politics begins when elections end, even though politicians want to believe that they they made their bones, they made their point by getting votes and therefore, they should work their will. That has actually happened, what I'm describing, with the, with the stimulus bill. It's his first piece of legislation. They got it through as a reconciliation measure. He got only Democratic votes in the House with a five-vote margin. He got, as it turned out, he got 50 votes in the, in the Senate. He, they didn't have to bring in Kamala Harris because there was one Republican senator missing because of a family crisis. So it was 50-49 without... Harris's participation, but it ends here. Like not almost nothing that's now on their agenda is going to be is going to f- can follow this model, pretty much. So then the question is, does he just turn into Obama in 2011 or Trump through you know in 2019, where it's just complaining about the other side and trying to own the other side and attack the other side? to keep your side unified and try to explain to what very small number of people in the middle there are that they're the bad guys and you're the good guys. So that's the political question that faces uh, 
Biden now? Is he going to play politics, which means if he wants to get things done, he is going to have to figure out some way to talk to Republicans, if that's even possible? Um, or, or you know, are they going to say, look, this is the biggest, we did the biggest thing that we could do, and we're going to try to ride it as far as we can? Well, that's the, the question that they're going to have to face is if National Journal's Charlie Cook is correct that they poisoned the well, there will be no further grand legislative packages. They'll be lucky if they get anything through with the rest of their the rest of this term. Um, so what do they take into the 2022 cycle? We did it. Hooray for us. Or we couldn't do it because the Republicans wouldn't let us. Both of those are pretty effective messages with limited track records for success in the uh, a new president's first midterm. Sure. The headwinds are, you know, may, who knows what's going to happen, but the headwinds are usually pretty strong for the party that controls both chambers of Congress and the White House. But you can't do both. You can't say we did it. And also we would have done it better. But for Republicans, that's too convoluted. Right. Well, we'll see. Well, you know, I, I think I think what we have here is a very, very, very interesting political uh, uh, experiment. We have all sorts of experiments. Some of them are not so interesting. They're much more worrying about like what's going to happen to the American family uh, with the reintroduction of, uh, of you know, st- straight aid for uh, for children having or whatever it is you want to call it. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, that is that is, I think, pretty pretty interesting uh and uh this is what we're going to be talking about from now you know and for the foreseeable future um speaking of uh the foreseeable future at the end of this month uh is the passover holiday and uh as i've been telling you uh day after day uh the subject passover and it's uh it's uh the book the haggadah uh, that jews use to celebrate and commemorate and go through the Passover Seder, is the subject of Mark Gerson's book, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. Um, uh, Mark, it's very rich, and there's all kinds of uh, great uh, riches here. And um, I just think, uh, I'm I'm just like thumbing through, looking for something that is really, you know, uh, fresh. So uh, one of the interesting aspects of the Haggadah, I'll just say uh, quickly, is that um, it, it, it concentrates much, in some ways, much less on the story of the Exodus from Egypt uh, in its own telling than it does on the dangers of idol worship, uh, which is a, the central feature of monotheism, obviously, as a kind of assault or attack on idol worship. And um, uh, as Mark says... Uh, Idolatry is the most frequently prohibited activity in the Torah. The Talmud says that the denial of idolatry is akin to accepting the entire Torah, a belief echoed by Maimonides. Uh, Since the Torah is our eternal guidebook, the most frequently prohibited activity must still be relevant. And the Haggadah says, originally our ancestors were idol worshippers, but God has now brought us nearer to his service. Nearer is a tantalizing word. It clearly suggests we are not there yet. There is a continuum from idolatry to service to God, but we are always in danger of idol worship, and we do it all the time. Everybody does it. We do it with politicians. We do it with celebrities. We do it with, uh, you know, we do it with royalty, and uh, and and uh, the Haggadah represents a, a stern annual reminder uh, that there is only one God, and that the God is not a, a God is not a is not a physical being. 
but is is uh, you know is is eternal and beyond us and somebody who sets the boundaries by which by which we live. So that's the telling. How Judaism's essential book reveals the meaning of life um, by Mark Gerson. Get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local bookseller. Download the audio book. Do whatever you can to read this book and enrich your life. So uh, as we're recording. Breaking news, uh, New York Democrats in the House uh, calling on Governor Andrew Cuomo to resign. We're talking about uh, AOC, Jamal Bowman, the new uh, newly minted uh, Justice Democrat congressman from Westchester, Grace Meng, Jerry Nadler, my congressman from the uh, from Manhattan, uh, Adriano Espayat, uh, Nidia Velasquez, and Mondaire Jones. So, um, uh, along with uh, the fact that he is now Cuomo is now under investigation in Albany for p- p- potential criminal uh, criminal assault, criminal sexual assault, uh, based on this allegation that he uh, fondled someone's, I guess, chest uh, under her shirt. Uh, having asked her to come to his office for some kind of consultation, uh, the fifth or sixth woman to make this kind of allegation. Uh, I have long believed that there was no, you were, you were going to drag Cuomo out of that office. You know, uh, you were, you were, you were going to need to, you know, uh, pull him out with a, you know, a grappling hook and a, you know, and a, uh, I don't know, a, a crane or something like that. But I, I don't know now this, uh, if the if the entire democratic establishment of new york state is calling on him to resign what what where where does he go from there i mean it's it's quite notable that the sixth accuser sexual assault accuser was the straw that broke the camel's back here and not you know little things like credible evidence of allegations that the governor's office had misled the public and legislators under oath to the effect of the nature of nursing home deaths as a result of public policy only and exclusively in pursuit of a favorable political narrative. Little teeny things like that, you know. Well, I mean... I'm quite sure this is a proxy for all that as well. But the fact that they can't say it is damnable corruption. But but by the way... Proxy proxy crises are like a, a an elemental feature of politics. Like uh, I think you could argue that uh, George W. Bush lost his his whole his political hold on on the United States uh, in the way that he had it. Not uh, he lost it because uh, Iraq went south in two thousand and five two thousand six. But it wasn't Iraq because the Republicans stayed with him on Iraq and supported the surge and stuff like that. It was Katrina. It was the federal response to Katrina that really represented the moment at which the United States and independents like said, we've had enough of you. You don't know what you're doing. But it was really about Iraq. But it was focused on Katrina. And I, I, I don't know that this is that same sort of thing. Like politically, people usually compare this to getting Al Capone on tax evasion rather than on actually being a gangster. But um, it's not clear that he wouldn't be gotten, by the way, on the nursing homes thing. It's, 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 it's developing. It's bubbling. Uh, we have credible evidence now of actual, you know, um, systematic malfeasance 
in terms of getting monies and stuff from the federal government, where they may they may have lied about certain types of things that they had to swear to on documents to get stuff from Washington. Uh, but that's gonna that takes time and has to you know like work its way through the system. Um, you know, so I don't know. I, I actually think, in a in a way, in a, in a meaningful way, both scandals are part of the same issue, and that that he's being punished for, which is his sense of invincibility throughout the crisis. Right? I mean, that is that is what all the the the, the women speak about how he sort of felt how, how he you know they got the feeling from him that he could do no wrong that he had license to do whatever he wanted. And that is exactly what his nursing home scandal and cover-up speaks to as well. Yeah, I think one of the most salient points about one of the accusers, uh, who this was kind of an aside in one of the reported pieces about it early on, is that he uh, didn't go to his own mandated sexual harassment training because he did, obviously he felt he didn't need, you know, he must, he, he knows what's, what's what. And there's a, the rule breaking, the, the minor rule breaking and minor rule violating um, is a sign of a kind of entitlement personality in general, but in a politician with the power that he has can, as we've seen, become quite dangerous. Okay, well, uh, this is uh, fun for us because, of course, we consider him a uh, loathsome and uh, disgraceful political figure, though, albeit one who has arguably done some very good things for New York State in terms of a large-scale uh, building and infrastructure. Um, but his own personal comportment and his uh, deceits, deceptions, and the fact that he uh, has governed and uh, worked his political will through uh, fear and intimidation. Uh, what we're seeing here is what happens when the fear goes away and but the, the intimidator no events, longer. The sequence of events here that would lead him to resign are still very difficult to imagine. And this was Ralph Northam's experience. He was confronted with the allegation that he had behaved in a racist manner. And at, to resign in that moment, according to the people who spoke off the record to reporters within his administration, if he were to do that, he would establish for all history his own racism. If Andrew Cuomo is to resign in this moment, he will establish for all history an indelible stain on his record as a sexual assaulter. Can I just make a quick point about Ralph Northam? Ralph Northam was not driven from office, I believe, because the allegation that he, not the allegation, we saw pictures, he said they weren't him or they weren't real or whatever, but that, that he had gone in blackface and that he had, you know, played this kind of game. African Americans in Virginia did not were not supportive of his resignation and removal. We don't I guess in theory because they assume every white guy in Virginia went in blackface. And so what does it matter who's the one who would succeed him even though uh, actually a an African American would have succeeded him? who had himself credible accusations of sexual uh, misconduct being levied against him. But um, there is a whole thing where this was uh, an unspeakable crime that no one could ever possibly survive and monstrous in the extreme. And then once again, in this weird political discovery that people made about African-Americans in 2019 and 2020, uh, they, uh, the African-American electorate in Virginia seem to be far less troubled by this simply because it assumed, I guess it assumes things about white men in their late 50s who grew up and lived in Virginia uh, that uh, d- didn't prevent them from voting for him in the first place. 
Cuomo's allegations are about his behavior now, his behavior currently in 2019 and 2018 and 2020 involving standards and ideas that he himself endorsed, supported, and said needed to be applied to other people. And of course, in the third week of February, his job approval rating was 57%, down from 63%. Right. But nevertheless, relatively stable. Yeah. Um, do we That's think the needle that has stable. moved that much? Well, we don't know. Five point, well, what is it? Six point. Drop. Again, so maybe so maybe the electorate doesn't care because it assumes that all politicians are scum and they're lying scum and they do whatever they can to lie, but he but he's okay. So maybe that's he he will he could benefit from the same level of skepticism, cynicism, mm-hmm. and a, and voters not like having wounded uh wounded sense that their hero had you know had feet of clay. But basically, yeah, yeah, we, we, of course he, of course he's a sexual assaulter. Who isn't when you get into that kind of, that kind of business? I don't know. Uh, guys, I just wanted to tell you that we, uh, as we uh, bring this week to a close, uh, we have a new product on sale at the Commentary Magazine store at merch.commentarymagazine.com. A women's t-shirt, uh, that says keep the candle burning commentary podcast commentary magazine podcast t-shirt limited time offer all sizes uh people were complaining that we were selling uh, too many uh, unisex shirts and so we decided we would give this a go prove us right prove us right that we are supplying you with a product that you want by going to merch.commentarymagazine.com and gobbling up this shirt for you, for your loved one, for your daughter, for your mother, for your grandmother, for anybody who might want to wear a Keep the Candle Burning Commentary Magazine podcast women's t-shirt. So I just want to say that my wife got her t-shirt. It was Christine smartly told me to buy a small for her, but and she was expecting this big bulky male design t-shirt that she could only wear to bed. She put it on last night and it was shapely, she said. And uh, form-fitting and comfortable and uh, of durable fabric and material. And she likes it and said, it's not just a workout t-shirt. She will be wearing it in public. So even even our male form t-shirts com- conform to the female figure. And now we're just going to make it that much better. Now th- that much better. At merch.commentarymagazine.com. Go and do that likewise. And for Abe, Christine, and Noah, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>